Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi bringer i den her ugen samtale, som jeg havde med Giuliano da Empoli på Bogforum for omkring en måned siden. Giuliano da Empoli har den særlige kombination af forståelse for idéer og praktisk erfaring med magten, som vi her i Langsomme Samtaler sætter utrolig stor pris på. Han er forsker i politisk teori og politologi og underviser på Sciences Po i Paris. Men han har også været strategisk rådgiver for den forhenværende italienske premierminister Matteo Renzi. Han har skrevet bøger om den nye tids populistiske virkemidler, men han har også arbejdet for den forhenværende italienske kulturminister. Så han kender teorierne om magten, og han har praktiske erfaringer med magten. Men ikke nok med det. Kort inden Ruslands invasion af Ukraine i februar 2022, udgav der på en roman. En roman, som på dansk hedder Troldmanden fra Kreml, og som er fortalt fra den politiske rådgivers side. Det er en roman, som foregår i nutidens Rusland. Det er en roman, hvor præsidenten i Rusland hedder Vladimir Putin, og hvor oligarkerne har de samme navn, som vi kender i virkeligheden. Men hvor... Den politiske rådgiver, som er Daempolis fortæller, er en lidt tillæmpet version af den virkelige skikkelse Surkov. Her følger min samtale med Giuliano Daempoli fra Bogforum. Well, Giuliano, thank you so much for coming to Copenhagen. It's a pleasure and a privilege to have you here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, in, a, in a moment or two, we're going to talk about your brilliant novel, but I want to ask one or two personal questions first, because I'm curious about one of the big themes in the novel is the connection between politics and violence. And I read there about your own upbringing, that your father, he was an economist, worked at the OECD, and when you were quite young, that he was exposed to a terror attack. He wasn't killed in it, but I was wondering whether that incident in, 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 in your early childhood or childhood how did how did that shape your understanding of politics and violence well i guess it had an influence <laughs> it was kind of a, um, a crash course introduction into the uh, the ties between between politics and violence because we were before living in brussels my father was working at the european commission that was very quiet Uh, you know, basically an office job, and we would live in the outskirts, have a little garden. I mean, the kind of lifestyle that I imagine northern cities have and that you could possibly have in Copenhagen. And uh, and then we moved back to Rome when I was uh, 11, and a year later, my father was shot in a terrorist attack. And, um, yeah, that was, I mean, and and ever since... Plus, the attack failed, the terrorist was killed, my father had a bodyguard who killed him. I mean, I won't go into it, but let's say it was pretty uh, extreme. And uh, and after that, my father lived un- under very heavy uh, police protection uh, until he died. And um, yeah, I guess that I was 12 at the time, and... Um, It uh, it caught my attention, I would say, and then that's why maybe I got into politics. And actually, I came to the conclusion that the, of course, the ties between between politics and and violence are 
structural. I mean, politics, the nobility of the activity of politics is that it's fundamentally what should stop people from shooting each other when they disagree. This is, part, to me, the mission of politics is that. Uh, but this means two things. That, number one, as soon as politics fails, it means that people start shooting at each other again, and violence erupts. And the second thing it means is that since, since it has this, this mission, this function, politics itself concentrates a huge amount of violence. It attracts people who also maybe have some violence in themselves, and it makes the political game often, even you know, in a functioning system where violence doesn't erupt, but the game in itself is pretty violent. And um, I guess this is something that, that I kind of tr translated into the book as well. And we'll return to that uh, in a moment. But I want to ask you something else, because you, you, like you mentioned, you went into politics. And if I look at your trajectory, it's very interesting that you're at, uh, teaching at the Sciences Po in, in Paris. You have your think tank, Volta. Uh, but you also have practical experience from, from a kind of real politics, serving as an advisor to the cultural minister, and then later to Matteo Renzi, who, I should add, was a very popular Italian leader here in, in, in this country. And I'm curious... It was very popular at one point and then very unpopular after, but that's what happens in <laughs> politics at yeah. times. Yes, but compared to what other Italian leaders, I could say he was some, someone that we had a lot of confidence in here. Okay, well, yeah, the, he has a very strong personality and is a very gifted politician in many ways. Um, well, I like to combine the two profiles. I, I, my interest in, in terms of political science and writing non-fiction essays and teaching at university, it was never disconnected from the practice. Uh, I, I cultivate the thero theoretical part uh, to understand the practice better in some ways. I, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm limited, you know, but I'm not so much into, I think if you want to go into high philosophy and things, there are subjects that are more, I mean, uh, that are more compelling than politics. To me, uh, the, the, it always need, there always needed to be a connection between between my my practical work and uh, and the writing and the teaching and and all that, of course now there's no connection anymore because I've stopped uh, my my political activity. But that's also maybe why I moved on to to novels, you know, because that's uh, that's a different thing. Again, I think if you want to, that's also part of a book. Uh, if you from the outside, I think. Many people maybe imagine that power has a is somehow rational, and you see you see the rules, you see protocols, you see uh, those big international meetings, you see all kind of things, and you might think it's rational. My personal experience is the closer you get to the heart of power, and the more the nuttier it gets, and the more irrational it becomes, and more ruled by by passion and by and by love and hate and, uh, of course, ambition and, and everything. And, uh, and that is something that I'm not sure you can really describe if you haven't experienced it. I mean, 
maybe you can, but but I'm I'm not totally convinced. But uh, you also need to be out of it yes. to be able to describe. I mean, it's good if you've known it and then you also got out of it. And and if you've done that, maybe you can try to start writing novels and try to start like uh, dealing with that uh, this way. And and this really, and I should recommend this warmly to to anyone who says this really is a very original and insightful book, and it helps. It inspires a political imagination in a way that's very helpful, I think, for thinking about political matters and also for trying to understand what what's inside the mind of, of Vladimir Putin, which all of us spent a couple of years trying to really uh, figure out. What's the story behind you coming out of politics, doing political essays, studies, teaching, and then deciding to write this specific novel? Yeah, I wanted to write a book about power in a way seen from the the perspective of the advisor. The political advisor is a, is a strange job. You have the advantage of seeing things from up close. Uh, Machiavelli used to say, conoscere discosto, so meaning you know things from the side, in a way. And it's a very privileged position in some ways. Then it's for it can be very frustrating as well because you can advise and then your advice is not followed. You know? <laughs> and, and people actually, they see the leader and maybe the leader does very dumb stuff and you're the advisor, so they go to you and they say, what are you doing? But the point is, the leader anyway, you know, often will not follow the advice. And also, I think it's an interesting perspective because... The advisor and the and the leader have two completely different temperaments. Uh, the leader has no distance. He's in the action. He believes in himself and doesn't see himself from the outside. Uh, he's blinded by power in many ways. Power blinds. There's a big paradox that if you want to gain power... In any situation, that's not just politics. It can be the news. It can be uh, uh, it can be a company. It can be a group of people. If you want to gain power, you need to understand others. You need to understand what they want, what they expect from you. You need to to see the situation correctly, and then once you have power, you lose this ability because you're focused on yourself. Because the others tell you what you want to hear. And uh, and so it's like a brain damage. Uh, actually, it's something that that uh, neuroscientists have measured. Uh, they've measured. They, they've done brain scans of of people in power, and they've noticed that some areas of their brain is le- are less active than normal people. And uh, it's just it's not all areas, you know, <laughs> just the areas that are connected to empathy. Uh, observing others, reflect, mimicking others, you know, that, uh, and those areas are le- less active. And this is the paradox of power. And this is any power, of course. And this is also why in our systems and in our democracies we try to limit power. And we try to not keep people in power too long and put counterpowers and all kind of things. Of course, in the Russian case... Less of that, less limitations, less counterpowers, more length in power. And I think this is something universal, but for example, in the Russian case, it's, you know, uh, uh, this 
to me, is an important part of, of Putin's story and of what is going on. I mean, the increasing, the increasing kind of tunnel mentality and, and lack of the paradox of power, where, where you really lose this, this ability to, to, to look at others and to, and to immerse yourself in, in reality. And there are antidotes to this. A good antidote is family, for example. If you're a person... Uh, who's in power, you go home and then you have a, a husband or a wife or a kid that treats you like an idiot. Um, that's very good because it kind of grounds you. Uh, it's, and another antidote is supposedly it should be advisors. <laughs> Uh, a good advisor is someone that doesn't want to be into... He doesn't want to replace or she doesn't want to replace the person that's actually in power. Because he sees it's a nightmare of a life, uh, actually. Uh, so mm, not everybody wants to live like that. Um, and, and so he keeps a bit of a distance. Doesn't happen very often. Now, often, of course, advisors as well, they're actually, they become courtesans and they just want to please, and so they're not doing their job correctly, I think. But if they do it correctly, they keep a bit of a distance and, uh, and they keep trying to advise and to tell the leader what the situation actually is. But the problem is, of course, this produces, ends up usually in conflict, which explains the high mortality of advisors. <laughs> uh, and again, I say mortality, and this comes back to the first question. We use the same term. We say somebody's dead politically, but he's not really dead. You know, he goes and gives conferences or lectures or writes books or does things like that. Uh, but he's politically dead because the political game is, is violent, even in, in our systems. Of course, in Russia or in systems where politics don't work well, when we say an advisor is dead, he might also actually be dead. <laughs> so. so I think there's um, the last couple of years we've been trying to understand Russia from the outside. And I think there is a tendency, at least in Western discourse, to see Russia a little bit Orientalist, as something totally different from us, as this very, very different country. And there's this famous Churchill quote about it yeah. being, and uh, I have it here, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an, an enigma. And there's this understanding of Russia as something totally different. And this is something that, that, that Russians play with also, saying we're a country that no one... Baranov says that also at a point in the book. We're a totally different country. But on the other hand, what you're describing here are pretty universal dynamics of power. You know, the accents are, are, are different, but, but they're pretty universal. And yeah. most of what the power dynamics that are in your book could be found in Shakespeare as well. And I was wondering, what, writing a novel about it, how did you balance this this is this entirely different country that is difficult to access for all, for all of us. And then the other knowledge that power dynamics are, in my view, pretty universal. I fully agree. I think that was actually, the, in a way, one of the challenges because I, I, I think that some dynamics are similar. First of all, some dynamics are universal. Some power dynamics, in my view, are universal. Uh, like this paradox of power that I was talking about, the mechanism of court, how the court be behaves, how people behave around power. There's something universal about it. 
And I think this is something that needs to be taken into account because it's useful to explain the Russian situation like as well as other situations. Then, of course, there are specifics. I mean, <laughs> then, of course, there are... And if you get the balance right between what is somehow universal and what is specific to the Russian culture, then maybe you get close to the, to, to, to the truth. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to say, you know, that I approach the truth. That's why I, I wrote a novel... Uh, the idea of the novel is that it shouldn't replace a history book or a report by a journalist or a, an expert in geopolitics or a, a Sovietologist, Russologist, whatever. It shouldn't replace those books. It's just a different way to access reality. It's, uh, maybe it's more lateral, but also it's more immersive. It tries to go into the head of those characters. I was interested in that character, uh, the the advisor. So basically, the main character in the book is a a, a guy who uh, is originally um, has a theater background, a contemporary theater background. Then goes into reality TV, and then he's hired uh, at the end of the nineties. First by Berezovsky, who was a Russian oligarch who owned the main TV channel back then, and then by Putin directly for his campaign uh, when, when he becomes prime minister and then, and then president. And this advisor, having this background, he, uh, he becomes a spin doctor, a propagandist, a manipulator. I mean, maybe we'll go into that uh, later. But he seems to conceive his work a bit almost as if it was a, a contemporary art performance. And it's... Uh, and it's a, and the wild thing about the, the character is that actually he really exists <laughs> in the sense that my novel is inspired to a really existing uh, Russian Putin former spin doctor called uh, Vladislav Surkov. And since my, uh, my um, before writing this book, I was writing a, an essay about spin doctors and propaganda, new techniques of propaganda. I discovered this guy. Others have written about him. I mean, he was already uh, already known, and I thought he was he would be a good subject for for a novel, and so I used him as a starting point for this novel. But I'm Italian, you know. I, I speak too much. Uh, I forgot your. I actually I forgot <laughs> the precise question you had asked. No, but, but, <laughs> but I, th I think you actually did re re respond to it. Uh, so I'm, I was curious about something about Putin that always struck me as very difficult to understand. Is that on the one hand he seems like a pre-modern leader. He seems, he, he seems like someone who's not part of the technological modernity that are that's shaping all of us. On the other hand, Surkov, or, or in your case, ba Baranov, he's this postmodernist who's like, in the book of Peter Pomerantsev, about the project, who's like making this, what Baudrillard would call simulacrum real, making this theater real. And there's this pre-modern, and then there's a postmodern part in, 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 in Putin. Uh, how, how do you yeah the the only thing that's lacking is modern actually. yes but um, yeah I, I I would agree um, you know you have to there was a scene actually I had a scene in the book that then I took out 
that was about Putin uh, never having sent an email in his life. Uh, it's not, I mean, Putin has never sent an email in his life. And he's probably, I mean, obviously never been on social media or stuff like that, but uh, not, I mean, even his relationship with the internet itself is, I think, very distant, you know, and that's for security reasons, it's for all sorts of different reasons. But so let's say, uh, he's definitely a pre-modern reader. And even his conception of power, uh, the way, the, the, the vertical conception of power he has, it's the opposite of, you know, network power or horizontal power, whatever. And, and, and what, we've, what we've been witnessing for the last year and a half, I mean, even this, like, this body war of conquest, it's, it's all stuff that we have trouble understanding because... We thought we were so much beyond all that, you know. So we have trouble understanding a leader that's really basically uh, a pre-modern, uh, autocratic, very vertical uh, leader. But then, as you say, um, he lives in the in the 21st century, and uh, and this postmodern theater that you mentioned. Uh, which is actually the, the job of Baranov, uh, the main character of my book, is something that's essential because we know how important like internet propaganda and, and troll factories and, uh, and, and all kind of things have been for Putin. And this is provided by people like the real Surkov and the, and the fictional Baranov who build all this, all this kind of very contemporary, very, they really exploit all the, all, all the features of our information ecosystem and of the internet and of, of social media in a way that's, that's actually pretty, pretty uh, efficient. So, um, so these two sides go together. Yeah. There's also a description of, of Putin in the book as an actor. And I think it's Stanislavski who makes these three categories of, of actors. There's the instinctive, brilliant actor that when she or he is performing at their best, they're seducing everyone. They're like the intuitive talent. And then you have the systemic actor who's, ne who's never really at the best, but never at the low uh, as well. And then there's the third category of actors, the one that embodies the part, the yeah. one that is acting by just being oneself. And Putin is that kind of, uh, of, of actor. Yeah, well, that's what my, my, my character at one point starts thinking. Because, first of all, the, the link between, uh, between um, politics and, acti and acting is, of course, very, very tight. Uh, not just in Russia. Uh, for example, Ronald Reagan, a former U.S. president, who was an actor, of course, before, from, from time to time, journalists would ask him, how can an actor be the president of the, of the United States? And he would reply, I don't see how someone who is not an actor could be the president uh -huh. of the United States. So, I mean, again, it's something quite universal. But in the case of Putin, I would say... Uh, another interesting thing is he is the product of a casting mistake. Um, Putin was at the beginning chosen by a power system. Uh, he appears at the end of the 90s uh, when Yeltsin has finished 
uh, already he was almost finished before <laughs> they rescued him. I mean, I, I tell the story a bit in the book, but in the end, in 99, of course, he's done two, man, two mandates and, uh, and he's really not doing well, so he, he needs to be replaced. And the power system that's around Yeltsin starts looking for a replacement. And uh, when a power system looks for someone a representative or someone, they don't choose the brightest, the smartest, the, 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 the you know, they, they don't choose the greatest person they, they can find. They choose uh, someone, they tend to choose someone that will be predictable, reliable, that you can count on, that's kind of, that might be a bit boring, but that will do the job. And, and, they see Putin, and they test Putin, and they think he's their guy. And uh, not the first one, actually. They test others. They have five minister, prime ministers in two years, so one after the other, you know, it really. But, and then they install Putin. At the, and at the beginning, everybody thinks that Putin is a very dull actor and not a very good one. And actually, he's a good one because <laughs> he fooled them first. <laughs> and then he reveals, you know, a completely different... And my character uh, in the book, he, he sees that. In some scenes at the very beginning, uh, he perceives that. And, and being a, a theater director, somehow he's, he's maybe sensitive to that. And he understands that he won't be able to direct him because a, a really a, a very strong actor can't really be directed, but that he will try to somehow you know work around him. And this is a bit the tragedy of the character also, the character in the book. Because, I mean, the book is a novel, and it's a story. So uh, the problem of debates, of course, is that the debating it is usually more boring than the book itself. <laughs> because, but that's, you know, uh, it's not about me, it's, it's, it, uh, it's not about you. It's just, you know, the, the book is a story. And, uh, and, uh, and, and then we discuss it, and it's, it becomes a theory, and it becomes a... The, but uh, what happens to the character in the in the book is that basically he's not a violent character. He's into manipulation. He's very Machiavellian, very cynical, and he will end up doing very bad things. But he's he thinks that manipulation works better than violence. So it's not like he's good. He just thinks. Violence is lazy in a way because you get better results through manipulation. And that's what he does throughout the book. But his tragedy in the end is that he has to confront the fact that there's a foundation of violence at the origin of Putin's power. And, and that is there. It's, it's there. It's there at the beginning. It's there throughout the book. And it will obviously be there at the end as well. And my book was actually written before the Ukraine war, at least before February 22, so last year. Uh, so it somehow, I mean, yeah, it was written before the full-on invasion. But it already ends 
on Ukraine being the 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 explosion of of violence that will will develop afterwards and um yeah i think this 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 uh uh this trajectory of the of the character and who has to acknowledge that he fundamentally will not be able to direct the actor putin is is important to the book yeah and i have the and it's very interesting reading the book because he's constituted as the tsar at the moment of doing an act of war yeah that he would, that's what constitutes Putin as the Tsar and the, as the leader in the novel, yeah. maybe in real life as, as well. But, but, but let, let's stick to the novel. And I've often had the impression that he has a kind of, and, and I'm, I'm against Putin, I'm against Russia with Ukraine, that he has a kind of upper hand on the European leaders because he is not afraid of violence. And we are afraid of, of violence. He recognizes the aspect of violence in politics And we've kind of eradicated that. And I think that's an ambition that I to- totally share. But there's a scene in the book, uh, which is also in real life, where he, he meets with Angela Merkel, who's yeah. like the icon of the old European order. And, and he brings a dog to, to, to the scene. Could you tell us about that? Because yeah. it seems iconic. So all the scenes in the book are real, actually. So basically, the, the rule of engagement of the novel is that All the facts, all the political, historical facts are all real, even in the smallest details. Uh, then, of course, the dialogues are reconstructed or imagined. I mean, when Putin talks to his advisor, of course, I wasn't there <laughs> at the time. And, uh, and then there's a personal part of the book which is also imagined. Uh, but... Uh, I th- to, since I come from nonfiction, and I wanted also the book to be honest in that uh, all the all the political scenes and historical scenes in the book are are real, and this is one of them, uh, and one of the most striking. I don't know if how many of you are familiar with this scene. It's become quite famous, uh, but uh, uh, basically. Um, Uh, it's a, it's a bilateral meeting between Angela Merkel and uh, and Putin in in Russia's official residency, and Putin shows up with his big his big Labrador black Labrador Connie, which was probably a very nice dog, but but it's a big black dog, and Angela Merkel is terrified of dogs. She has the phobia of dogs, and Putin obviously knows that. Uh, and so showing up to that meeting uh, with the dog is an act that can look like that, but it's incredibly violent. Uh, because you have to imagine meetings like that, uh, the size of this little container and its position and that, and that glass, they will have been agreed between the ambassadors and the things before, days before, and things and object of negotiations. So showing up unexpectedly with a huge dog and terrifying your counterpart is something that's, that's quite brutal. And you can see the images, of course, and you see Merkel very, I mean, stiff on her chair. Very, and, uh, and to me, that, that happened in 2007, actually, in reality, And to me, that was the moment, it's a very strong image, and I say it's a time where uh, we, uh, in the sense, the advisor says, 
we decided not to play by your rules anymore, meaning the Westerns, because the whole book is an exercise of getting into the head of that guy. So we decided not to play by your rules anymore because we would lose by those rules. You know, if, you follow, if we follow your rules and things, of course, I mean, we, we won't make it. And we decided to embrace somehow chaos and predictability. To me, the poor dog, <laughs> uh, who's not guilty, but uh, the poor dog, he symbolizes really this choice of not playing by the rules anymore, being unpredictable, being very brutal and violent if need comes. And that's why the character says, um, we did better than Caligula. <laughs> because Caligula, of course, made his horse a senator, but we made the dog our foreign affairs minister. And yeah, to me, that's a, that's a symbolic, uh, important image. In, in the last fifth of the book, I think there's the reference to a childhood experience in St. Petersburg of Putin, where he is fighting in the yards with the bullies, or he's trying to avoid fighting with the bullies, actually. And And he says that, that he found out that it was, uh, it's not the, the exact words, uh, but he says that he found out he gained an advantage in these fights if people were afraid that he would be unpredictable, that he was able to do crazy things, that that was a way of intimidating uh, other people. And I wondered when I read that whether he's been doing a bit the same thing to us in the West, making these big staging of he's sitting with this huge table and we're thinking, well, he must have lost his mind. Or, you know, we saw the pictures of him with his advisors and, and he was like dismissing all of them. Whether he's been doing like a, playing a little bit of Mad King uh, on the Western audiences. So we're thinking he could be crazy. He could drop the nuclear bomb and actually gained an advantage saying, well, we should be very careful to support the, the Ukrainians. Do you see him playing that part of us? Yeah, um, well, unfortunately, that's a whole question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because part of it is real. I mean, for, for example, his COVID paranoia is something real uh, that all the people working with, with him experienced, that you had to basically, not only did you have to quarantine for two weeks before seeing him, but then after you would, when you went in to see him, you would, have to go through a gallery uh, that sprayed you with all kind of, you know, disinfectant thing so that you would arrive to the meeting during COVID having quarantined before completely drenched. So he would only at one point be talking to people who are completely wet from, from head to toes. Yeah. So, I mean, that apparently, unless it's a very clever manipulation, as you say, you know, unless it's something that, you know, is not true. But, but uh, I think, on the other hand, I think this is true. I think he plays on that. Uh, in my book, I lend him this, this memory, which is not real, this is part of dialogue, so it's something he tells his advisor, but it's not a real childhood memory of Putin, but it's basically when he was playing in the courtyards with his gang of, of, little, of little rascals in, in, uh, in, uh, in St. Petersburg, 
they, they had homeless people uh, around in, in Putin's memory, and they used to abuse those, those homeless, you know, kick them or be nasty to them, all of them, except Stipa the madman. And, and that's what was because Stipa was completely nuts. So you could say, smile to him and say hello, and he would break a bottle of vodka on your head. And so since you never knew what he was going to do, uh, people stayed away. So in my mind, this teaches that lesson to Putin. And of course, it's an advantage, especially when you're dealing with the West, with Westerners. We like predictability. Yes. We like, we like things to be predictable. What we can't deal much with is chaos. Uh, we can deal with all sort of challenges, but we like them to be <laughs> somehow predictable. And of course, if someone can destabilize this, this is a this is a strategic advantage. I mean, Putin's not the only one who's exploiting this. My personal opinion is he's not nuts. I think he's uh, he's part of this power paradox. He's increasingly dangerous because he sees his position in historical terms. So, for example, his foreign affairs minister supposedly said, I don't think he really said it, but when they asked him who Putin's advisors were today, he said uh, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, and, uh, no, and even, even the terrible before, I think. Uh, there is a truth to that, I think, because he now only sees himself into that kind of perspective, which makes him extraordinarily dangerous because he's not accessible to so much transactional um, uh, offers or things. But at the same time, I think he's not. I don't think he's crazy. Uh, I think the Prigogine event, for example, the rebellion this summer of uh, of this warlord, uh, this is one of the things to me that proves he's not nuts, because he didn't lose it no. then, and when he left Prigogine, this is the warlord who was in charge of the Wagner private army and who was basically created by him and rebelled. Uh, this this summer, and and everybody said during that month when he was still alive, they said Putin's so weak that he's not even punishing this guy. He's going around and everything. And for a whole month, this lasted. And I think if he had been out of control. Uh, he would have overreacted immediately. Uh, of course, he could get rid of him before. I mean, the, 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 the Russian army had the capability to, to, to get rid of, of Prigogine before. Uh, if he had been um, ira completely irrational or, or, or felt existentially threatened or his power threatened or into a panic or anything, he would have overreacted to that. And the fact that he didn't uh, and that he took care of things and then got rid of Prigogine to me means that he still has a certain rationality the way he operates. Um, I think you, that can be seen on many levels. 
course, it's a very brutal rationality, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, but, and I also think if we look back over the, the warfare since February 2002, it's obvious that he's managed to give us the horror of unpredictability, but he did observe all the NATO red lines. He, did, he was extremely, it's extremely brutal at what he's doing. He seems beyond limits what he's doing, but he's observing the red lines of, and I remember when there was a guy on the tractor who was killed in Poland by an accident. There was a little fear that this might have been Russian overstepping the line, but he didn't. So I think that supports the, the, the thought that, that, of course, there's an aspect of irrationality. It's within all power, but he's an irrational actor when it comes to leading the war. My last question is that this novel is also about going to Russia mentally and and literally, and watching Europe from there. There, there, are, there are very interesting criticisms of... So you, cl- you call our people oligarchs, but what were the rich people in your country? You don't kill them when they get political power. Uh, there's also the feeling uh, in Europe, which is double. On the one hand, uh, there's this saying in the Commission that Europe has never been more united. Europe has uh, been strong in solidarity against Russia. On the other hand, there's also an exposition of European weakness, our extreme dependence on America, our fear of the American election next year. And the, this, w- what do we do now? Where does this meeting with Putin in real life, I'm asking the polit- political scientists, leave Europe? How do you see Europe now? Well... I'm not the magician myself, you know. The, <laughs> I don't know what the precise translation in Danish is, but it's still the, the magician of the Kremlin, right? Yes. No, as a, um, but I would say, uh, on the one hand, of course, uh, I think probably both COVID and uh, the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine have reinforced Europe in the sense that you know, I'm very pro-European, uh, and we were always asking ourselves, how do you, how does people really get the feeling that Europe is something that's actually valuable to their own life and that protects them and that has a meaning? And uh, and it was hard to give that before. And then I think both COVID and and the Ukraine the, the Ukraine uh, war created a bit of that. Uh, at the same time, as you say, we're so much weaker and we're completely surrounded by wars now. If you look at Europe today, uh, if you look at Europe on a map, you see that our continent is now surrounded by war. Uh, you have Libya uh, on the southern border. Now you have what's going on in, in the Middle East, in, in, in Israel. And and then you go up and you go to Ukraine. And this continent, completely surrounded by wars, has no army, no common defense, no... And and actually is a continent that thought that history was over. It's it's an American writer who wrote The End of History, but it's only Europeans who believed it. (laughs) That's a a surprising part. Uh, Americans never believed that history was over. Uh, Europeans did. Europeans did think that, you know, from now on, and that's how we dealt with Russia, actually, and that's why we didn't want to see until the end, and Merkel, I I can't blame, you know, we can't really blame them, because they thought, and we thought, 
that we were going to be able to deal uh, with everything, with questions and political problems through treaties, agreements, commercial exchanges, uh, basically lawyers and things, and that this would be the way conflict is dealt with. In, and that this model that worked so well for Europe because we stopped killing each other and, and making wars with each other, and this is something really remarkable, even for Europe, uh, that this would progressively become the universal model because it's a good model, and so we thought that would happen. And now we see this is really not the case. And actually, this is considered... If you look at the actors that look at us uh, from the outside, the Russians, the, uh, the people, or, but even the Americans and leaders in the Middle East and all, uh, this attitude is considered actually weak, naive, and, uh, and, and where does it leave us? So, so personally, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I still think that the European model is a, is a, and even if we were mistaken in some ways, it's a nice mistake we yes. made in some ways. But of course, now we live in a different world and, uh, and this needs to be adjusted in some ways. And I would say if we all need the mental preparation, the political preparation, for this new world. I think your novel is a wonderful place to start and we can even go back and, and read it again. Thank you so much for coming and enlightening us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Det var så min samtale med Giuliano da Empoli fra Boforum 2023. Den var sat sammen og redigeret af vores ufatteligt gode ven og vidunderlige hjælper Mass Adam Wiener. I næste uge, der fortsætter vi vores studium i Kinas kapitalisme, Kinas udenrigspolitik og Kina som ny geopolitisk stormagt i det 21. århundrede. Det har jo været et undertema her i Langsom Samtaler i efteråret. Vi taler med forskeren og forfatteren Min Seng Pei, som har lavet en ny bog, der meget vel kunne gå hen og blive det autoriserede værk om den kinesiske overvågningsstat. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak fordi I lyttede med.